Amen. Do have a seat. Uh, let me add my welcome uh, to Andy's too. Isn't it great to hear these stories of uh, how God is still changing people's lives? Uh, well, let's, uh, in our Bibles, open up to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we're going to flick around. Now, everybody who's a regular here knows fine and well that we love nothing more than opening up books of the Bible and taking as long as we like to walk through them verse by verse, passage by passage. Sometimes, though, it's good to pause to have a little doctrinal series where we're expounding the Word of God on a particular topic. That makes preachers like me feel very much out of our comfort zone, but it's still a good thing for us to do as a church. We're going to be thinking in the next few weeks about different aspects of what it means to be a church, what a church is. That's today. We're going to be thinking about what is the Lord's Supper. We're going to be thinking about what is baptism. What are the kind of things that churches do according to Scripture? So let's pray before we come to consider this question together, what is the church? Our Father, uh, we are grateful for what you remind us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that when we open your word, your Holy Spirit is at work to help us grasp, understand, and apply the truths that we consider. Uh, may you be at work through him. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Okay, let's uh, think for a second about all of the places you've been and all the places you've ever lived and think particularly about places that are very, very dear to you. Uh, and by dear, of course, uh, to our Scots, I don't mean expensive. I mean treasured in your heart. Where are those places? And why are those places so dear to you? It might be a place where a memory was made. It might be a place where a relationship began. It might be a place that marks a significant first in life. It might be a place where you're with someone that you love. It might be the place where joy for you has been at its purest. You might now have two or three uh, different places in mind, but which is the dearest place to you? Now, I wonder if Charlotte Chapel features on that list. No, I don't have a camera facing you. This is an old photo, just to be sure. But is the gathering of God's people in this local church, for those who are members here, the dearest place on earth to us? If you're visiting with us, from another church, we're glad you're here. I hope you're thinking about your own. Now, some might say, well, actually, is this the dearest place? No, because I was thinking about Marbella. It's a nice place. Others might say, uh, well, no, because actually I've been hurt by people in this church before and I find it tough. Others might say, well, no, because I don't like where this church is headed. Uh, or uh, it's all right, but I'm actually quite fine about missing it. Well, do you want to know the main reason though why I believe gathering with God's people doesn't really feature on our list of dearest places? It's really because we have forgotten, or else even, this is a possibility, never even been taught what a church is and what place the church holds in the heart of Jesus Christ, our Savior. She is, we are, his beloved, his bride. And that ought to make 
this gathering. For those of us who belong to Charlotte Chapel, the dearest place on earth. So what is a church? That's a question we're seeking to answer today. And based on how this word is used nowadays, some might say, well, it's a building, it's a place where Christians meet, or it's a denomination. Uh, like Nick was pointing out earlier, the, the Roman Catholic Church, it refers to a whole organized system of religion. But that's not what the Bible says a church is. Based on how the word is used in the Bible, the church is not a building, it is a people. You've already heard that uh, from what Andy said in his introduction. You've sung about that in the songs that we've chosen for today. It is, and it's quite simply, the way the word was used back then routinely, not just in terms of Jewish or Christian settings like we haven't mentioned in the Bible, but in everyday use in political life of towns and cities, the, the, the word that was used is a, means assembly. And actually, I, I'm on a little bit of a personal mission to make sure that we start using this word the right way. It, it makes the people around me mad at me very often, you can just ask my kids. So, I mean, one of my kids said recently, oh, dad, my jumper's in the church. And I went, ah, who swallowed it? It's good to teach some good theology along the way. Jim, our facilities manager, actually, poor Jim, I think I've driven him mad with this. He used to just very kindly pop his head in and say, just to let you know, I'm closing up the church at 4.30 and it will be alarmed. And I say, technically... You can't close the church, though it can be alarmed. Now, the church is too precious in God's sight to be confused with being a mere building. So join me in this annoying campaign, please. So let's talk about the church and the way Jesus talks about the church. That's why we've got these two passages that have been read to us already here. These are two passages that were read to us. These are two occasions, and the only two occasions, interestingly, when the word church is on the lips of Jesus. Everything he said assumed, everything he taught about gathering his new covenant people, his disciples, assumed this church. But twice he used the word, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And what's fascinating about these two passages is that Jesus uses the word church, assembly, in two different ways. He tells us of two different assemblies that we are, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or ought to be, simultaneously a part of. Simultaneously gathered into. One gathered in heaven, and one gathered on earth. Let's start with Matthew 16 and the church gathered in heaven. Okay, Matthew 16, 13 to 20, as you probably picked up from the reading of it, says that Jesus is building his church, which is just his way of saying he is assembling a people who belong to him. He's building his church with those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In verses 13 to 16 of this passage are all about the identity of Christ. Verse 13, Jesus asks, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And Son of Man is just Jesus' favorite designation for himself. His disciples offer the answers that they've heard. But verse 15, Jesus asks, what about you? Who do you say I am? And then Peter in verse 16 says, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. Messiah means God's promised anointed king. The one whose coming was foretold in the Old Testament, the king who'd give himself up and lay his life down for his people. Son of the living God tells us that Jesus is identifying himself as the Son of God. God himself in the flesh. The one and only Savior who came from heaven to redeem and rescue us. Now, what has Peter done when, as he said this? What did he do that made Jesus say, that's right, amazing Peter, you've just said what can only be said by those that the Heavenly Father reveals this to. What has he done? He's made an open and a verbal confession. A confession. Not in the sense of an admission of guilt, but uh, in the sense that he's making a statement of faith. He is a confessor. Confessing. He is a believer making a public statement about what he believes in his heart about Jesus. And you're like, what does this have to do with the church? Well, verses 17 to 20, and Jesus tells us that he's building his church on this, on confessors confessing, on people believing in Jesus and making an open, open statement of that. That's why verse 18 says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, let's be super clear about this. The rock is not Peter himself as Roman Catholics claim. No, the rock is the truth that has just been confessed, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God sent in love to be the Savior of the world. If you confess that, you are saved from your sins. That whole idea is perfectly reinforced in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which says, if you declare, that is confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, that is, from your sins and from God's judgment. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess or confess your faith and are saved. Now, you not only confess and have your sins forgiven, at the same time you, at that point, join the heavenly assembly of the church. Now, what does that mean? Well, spiritually speaking, this assembly that Jesus has in mind when he mentions the word church in Matthew 16, this assembly is made up of all God's people from every time and in every place in heaven. That's where it's, if you like, located. This teaching is found in other parts of the New Testament too, especially Ephesians. Ephesians is absolutely jam-packed with references to, to the church in the heavenlies and what it means. Ephesians 2 verse 6, for example, what did God do when he saved us? God raised us up. When we, made, when we become confessors confessing Christ, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Like physically? Of course not. That's not what Jesus is claiming. But spiritually, in anticipation of what we will have one day, physically. Now that's incredible. When you think about it. I mean, if the Find My Friends app on iPhone could be Find My Church, you'd find us all in some way in heaven with Christ. 
though we are physically here, we are, as believers, significantly, spiritually, there, so vitally united to him in faith that we are seated with him in glory. That's stunning. Meditate on that. Like for your whole life, it's glorious. And we're also there with each other. Now, if you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're like, yep, this is, this is bonkers. I knew it would be. But listen, the big question as we talk about this whole issue of what is a church for you is, do you belong to it? Do you belong to this heavenly assembly? Like, would, do you belong to Christ? If we had a live feed to the heavenly assembly, if it was possible to get a picture of it somehow, would we see you there? Well, based on all that we've looked at in the last five minutes, if you have not confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that he died for your sin and was raised from the dead, then you're not. And that's a big problem because you are still in your sins and still under God's wrath. That's why Christians like us are so keen to talk about this, not in a condemnatory sense to say, you're all going to hell, but in a saving sense, and a, a pleading sense to say, you don't have to, because there's good news about how you avoid it. It's by confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And that's the only way. We heard that in our testimonies. How many of them in these testimonies said, do you know what, I was living a life like this, I was away from God and so on, and then I just attended church really regularly, and now I'm in the assembly. Not one said that. How many said, do you know what, I went to Sunday school as a kid and really enjoyed it, actually we had the opposite of that. <laughs> no one said that. How many of us said, do you know, I had this water baptism performed on me when I was a kid, and because of that, I'm a part of it. No, infant baptism has no power to grant anyone entry. So my encouragement for you today is to ask us more about this gospel, this good news of Jesus, and join the great multitude today. For those of us who do believe, what do we learn from the way that Jesus uses the word church in Matthew 16? What does it teach us about who we are? My question for all of us is, have we truly grasped and daily grasped what it means to be a part of this church? As I've said, read Ephesians. It's got some of the most amazing descriptions of the universal church that we'll read. It tells us who's the head of this church. Ephesians 1.22, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church. We're not in charge. He's in charge. It, God tells us, what he's doing through his church. This is incredible. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Like God is saying to the rulers in the heavenly places, look at these marvelous people. Evidence of my great redemption. No one could have dreamed this up. It's a marvel. And Ephesians 5.25 reminds us of why Christ did what he did for his church to assemble us. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So as those who have been graciously adopted into this family and named in the heavenly assembly, we must be those who are totally all in committed to honor our head, to live thrilled at what he's doing to us as a display of his glory and love his church the way he does. Simple. But this is, of course, more than a mere appreciation of a spiritual reality when we're thinking about the church. It's not just some kind of abstract idea that we say, that's very nice, I'm just going to go along and get on with my life in a very individualistic way. No, membership of Christ's heavenly assembly needs to have, according to Scripture, an earthly expression. If our membership of that heavenly assembly is real, it ought to show up on earth in real time and space with real people, people with names like Barry, Jill, Vijay, Maywan, Olu, even Liam, people who covenant together in their common confession of Christ, not selecting to be together, but put together by God to be the body of Christ together, which is precisely what Jesus intends for us to understand by the second way in which he uses this word in Matthew 18. So flick over a couple of pages. Where here we see him use the word in reference to the local church, the church gathered on earth. Now this is a passage, which you might have picked up, is actually about church discipline. And the long story short, the summary sentence, if you like, is the church is the final arbiter on its members' membership. Who's in and who's not in rests with the church. Now, verses 15 to 16 tell us what we should do if we see a brother or sister in Christ sin. That is God's concern for us and ought to be our concern for one another. Verse 15 says we should go and point it out just between the two of us. Verse 16 says if they don't listen, take someone with you. Hopefully that will help someone take note of the seriousness of sin and be sorry and find reconciliation. But verse 17 says that if that doesn't work, tell it to the church. Now, what does Jesus mean there? Tell it to the church. Are we to apply the meaning that we've just drawn from Matthew 16? Go and tell it to all people who've ever believed from every time and every place, everywhere. How? Like, when you become a Christian, you don't get a special intercom. You can't declare that to every Christian, even living in Edinburgh right now. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. No, Jesus is clearly speaking about a local assembly of believers which is actually the most common use of the word ecclesia, the Greek word for it. This local assembling of the people of God is the way that Jesus organized Christianity. A local church is what he expects all who truly confess him to join. Read the rest of the New Testament. Local churches are what his disciples started and ordered and strengthened in Acts. Local churches are the focal points for the instructions given in New Testament letters by the apostles. Local churches are, as Revelation 1 to 3 says, what Jesus walks among and personally tends to. It is an expectation. Jesus intends everyone who believes the gospel to be gathered locally with others who believe the gospel to be a kind of local geographical assembly of the heavenly assembly. 
Uh, Jonathan Lehman, in his excellent little book, Rediscover Church, he's co-written this with Colin Hansen. We've actually ordered about 30 or so of these, and they're, they're not here for this Sunday, but they will be on the bookstall for next Sunday. Uh, it's a very, very helpful book, and I'd encourage you to buy it. But he says in his book, Rediscovering Church, that you can liken this to the way that embassies work, okay? He says, an embassy, of course, is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another. And each embassy represents and reflects the sending nation and its culture. So uh, I uh, had to visit the uh, British Embassy in Kigali, Rwanda, many, many years ago. Uh, and I went in an, almost in an instant from mid-African culture into the United Kingdom in an instant, just by walking through some gates. And I went from hearing Kenya Rwanda in the language of Rwanda to hearing English. I went from eating matoki, which is like steamed banana, uh, to, to, to eating chicken and gravy which was great. Now, within those walls, they were doing the queen's business at that time. They were the representatives of their sending sovereign. It was, in every respect, an outpost of the United Kingdom right there, plonked in the middle of Rwanda. And that's a good illustration for what a local church is. A local church is an outpost of the heavenly assembly on earth. And assemble with the members of that church. And what will you find? Well, similarly, you'll find what was happening in the embassy. You'll find the king's business being done, the king's word proclaimed, the king's victories celebrated, the king's converts baptized, the king's food, bread and wine in particular, enjoyed with deep, deep gratitude. You'll find the king's people devoting themselves to learning and serving. You'll find the king's character manifesting in his servants, the king's songs being sung, and all the while waiting for the king's call to come home. It doesn't matter what part of the world you find one of these assemblies, all true churches everywhere do these things. Local churches, in local churches, embassies if you like of heaven, you'll find the king's business being done, and you'll find, in fact, the king is right there with them. I wonder if you noticed that from our reading in Matthew 18. In this instance of, uh, uh, of explaining what to do when, you're, when church discipline is necessary, the reason why a local church is the arbiter of a member's membership is because the church has been given authority and because Christ specifically is with, present among his gathered church, his local assembly. That's stunning. In verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That sounds odd, but it, it basically means the church has been given authority to render judgment on confessions, what people believe, and confessors, the people who say it. In other words, to say even through baptism, yes, we are baptizing you because we believe you to be a true confessor of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We count you a brother or sister in Christ. That's what we're doing when we baptize these friends shortly. And even to say through the disciplinary aspect of the Lord's Supper, we will remove this person with deep, a deep sense of grief 
for not repenting of living in a way that's inconsistent with the confession of Christ. Indeed, that's what the keys symbolize back in Matthew 16, which is what verses 19 to 20 address. Look with me in 18. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am I with them. See that? Local churches gather. And when we do, whether to practice discipline, as in this uh, particular focus in Matthew 18, or routinely like this, to hear the word of God preached, to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, where we affirm one another's membership in the universal church, this is what we do. And Christ is right here with us. I'm going to talk more about what that means for us in terms of application next week as we look at what is church membership. Is it actually a biblical concept? We believe it is. And we'll talk about that. For now, I simply want us to understand what a church is so that we can go out of here and know exactly what we are, what we are called to be for each other, and what we are called to do in this world. What is the church? Well, according to Jesus, in these two passages, it is the invisible and heavenly assembly of all God's people from every time and every place in heaven, saved from their sins and sanctified in the Spirit. And it's manifestly visible in local assemblies of confessors confessing Jesus as Lord and living as such. The church is glorious. Is this your understanding of the church? I want us all to check our hearts on this because how we think and feel about the church and belonging to it, it actually reveals how much we know the heart of Christ. Too many Christians have a less than satisfactory grasp of this. It's an event to attend rather than a family to belong to. It's an hour and a half in the week, not really much different to visiting the cinema. But too many think too little about the church. They think sometimes that because it's messy and some of the people are quirky, that it's something to keep at arm's length, like dodgy cousins. But too many think that they can use the church to their own advantage too. They act insincerely, forgetting whose church it is and who holds the church more dearly in his heart than any one of us. And I get it. Since I became a Christian when I was 19, I've been a member in three different churches. I've been a pastor in two. I've seen and been on the receiving end of behavior that makes the bride of Christ look so ugly that not only do I feel like I don't want to shepherd her anymore, I actually wonder sometimes what Christ sees in her. Haven't you? At times. But then I hear a brother preach God's word. 
or I sit in a small group and hear a sister come to an understanding and declare what she knows about a passage we've been looking at together. Or I hear the testimony of someone being baptized. Or I look around during communion to see a family of fellow strugglers trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And sometimes even I just, when we're singing these songs of praise to God, I just stop singing so I can hear everybody else sing. And that's when I get it. That's when it hits home. That this bride, warts and all, is actually beautiful. And I find myself loving the church as Christ does. We ought to, all of us, think like that. That's why the gathering of this local church for its members or for you in your own church back home. That's why our local church ought to be for us the dearest place on earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray as your spirit led the Apostle Paul to pray in Ephesians that to you, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and we pray that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our very beings so that, we may, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people in the local and universal church to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God fullness you give us in him and now to you the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to your power that is at work in us to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen well before we come to back